0: It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes.
0: Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextwheelcom slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more.
1: Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add
0: to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day,
1: the hot rock and relic the better one plus members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes
0: we also record additional pre and post show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear like conversations about similarly themed movies and answering listener questions from our live member chat speaking
1: of our live member chat we record almost all of our episodes in discord where members can chat
0: right along with us live members get access to other members only channels in our discord community as well on top of all that members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private next Real feed just for them that includes all the shows in the next reel family the next Real, the film board movies we like sitting in the dark and more new projects on the way to top it all off members don't have to listen to ads we've already eliminated those annoying dynamically inserted ads that let's face it we all hate it we are listening to you we love podcasting for a living and those ads help to pay the bills now we're counting on you dear listener
1: we promise we aren't going back to those terrible dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all all we ask is that you consider supporting the NextReal family of podcasts with a membership.
0: Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership.
1: Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our
0: conversation begins.
1: Waterworld is over.
0: Oh, thank God. The future. The polar ice caps have melted. And the earth lies beneath a watery grave. Those who survived have adapted to a new world. What did you see out there in the 15 lunars? Such as. An end?
1: An end to all this water? You're asking the wrong person. Pure dirt. So what's the work? We trading or not?
0: And the human dream is the search for a mystical place called dry land. It doesn't exist! How can you be sure? Because I sailed farther than most have dreamed. I've never seen it. This place, this whole way of living, it's ending. Straight line leading directly, directly to dry land. Dry land is not just our destination, but it is our destiny.
1: Andy, we're talking about Waterworld today. Kevin Costner's, uh, Kevin Costner's <laughs> troubled, troubled uh, 1995 movie uh, with Kevin Reynolds
0: directing. That's, this was their, this, you know, the fourth in their, uh, work together as friends after Fandango. And uh, was it Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and then Rapa Nui, which Costner only produced that one, and then this one. For some reason, my head always says that they worked on Dances with Wolves together. I think Reynolds must have helped in some capacity on that one. He advised, here it is, he advised Costner on that one, but uh, an uncredited second unit director. But th- this is the one that. Reynolds returned to the director's chair with Costner acting. It broke their friendship. My favorite quote about all of it is: uh, he <laughs> Reynolds, after the film was done, he said, um, Kevin Costner should only act in films that he, he directs because then he'd always be working with his favorite actor and director. <laughs> ouch, ouch,
1: <laughs> Kevin. Yeah, I know. Uh, wow. Well, uh, so we're here because this is a Golden Raspberry movie.
0: Golden Raspberry. Yes, it is.
1: Wrapping up our series on the movies of the raspberries golden. Uh, I hadn't seen this in a long time. Very, very long time. I know there were multiple versions of this movie. I did not watch the, what was it? The Ulysses cut. I I know you did.
0: The Ulysses cut. Yes.
1: Where do you, do you want to start with just a little bit of table setting around the Ulysses cut for this movie? and and what i missed seeing the theatrical cut
0: the theatrical cut is uh, i think 2 hours and 15 minutes yes. then there was a tv cut that they released uh that was tv it had 40 additional minutes and then the ulysses cut has two more minutes than that so it's it's basically a little longer than the tv cut is um what we get with the ulysses cut is there's actually And I didn't revisit the theatrical cut for comparison's sake, but from looking at um, some comparisons online, the Ulysses cut adds a lot more depth. It's definitely you get a lot more of the world building key plot points, the discovery of Mount Everest, more of seeing just how unsympathetic the Mariner is as a character, which was interesting. You get the, and I I don't know if this was in yours. I'm assuming it's not because it's because the fact that this is called the Ulysses Cut is they uh, at the very end uh, Helen gives him a name and says you you should have a name, and she talks about the story of uh, Ulysses by Homer and how he ended up finally coming home, and so she gives him the name Ulysses. The story there was a lot of story. In here, it it wasn't censored. I know some of the stuff was cut because of the ratings board and stuff like that. And I just found it to be uh, some really solid world building throughout. Like I think they did a great job um, putting this story together and giving us a, a a tale that was largely fleshed out and had time. It never felt rushed. So with a full three hour cut, it just um, I don't know. It, there was a lot of stuff in it.
1: Is that your sense of the of the theatrical cut that it felt rushed?
0: I I, I don't remember. Honestly, I can't remember. I'm just saying with three hours, it never felt rushed. So I don't know if the if I mean, I'm I'm not sure I haven't found a list of like all the specific scenes and everything that were cut. So I don't know. um, I don't know how much they cut. Uh, To it just seems like it for almost a full hour or forty five minute difference. It just seems like yeah,
1: that seems like a lot. And uh, I do I like the idea of him getting the name at the end. I think that's an interesting way to kind of play it. But weirdly, this movie I didn't I didn't hate this movie. (laughs) I went into this. You know what I remember of the movie is the controversy. Right, I remember the massive budget. Uh, uh, challenges i remember the stories of the technical challenges of the movie i mean wasn't this the one where they actually had to reshoot some significant part of the movie because in a storm some undeveloped film actually slid overboard into the sea like i, I think it was plagued with comically terrible stories of of production challenges filming off the yeah. coast of hawaii and uh, the set sank. The, the sets the set sank andy
0: because the rumors were that it was the giant atoll set that sank, but what it was was the smaller slave colony one that sank. And I think that's the one that they come across where the deacon and his men are have tied the dead people's hands up, yeah. so they're all waving at him. I think that's the one that sank.
1: So that's just like a floating tree. Treehouse yeah, is yeah, what that was. Yeah. Right. Oh, they could afford to lose that. Right, no. So there's there's just some uh, more kind of interesting things going on here. One of the the kind of fascinating bits is just all of the the production design and the world building that goes into this movie. Like it, from the opening sequence of his boat, his boat is damn cool. Uh, oh, I think wow. they built that was a
0: stunning. Yeah,
1: stunning, stunning piece of machinery. This boat to uh, that, uh, and watching him work it. Like I never felt this is going to sound strange coming from me, and let me say. Kevin, old two by four Costner is perfect for this movie because wood floats. And uh, so I know I've been waiting for that joke. Um, You just
0: couldn't help yourself. I
1: did. There was never a point where I found myself not believing Kevin Costner could run a boat. Right. Like I felt like I believed him as the mariner on his boat. Like he felt constantly of a piece with the with the world that that was kind of cool coming into this movie and actually believing the main character whom I sometimes don't seems like a low bar to get over. But for me, it was a bar.
0: (laughs) It was well, and that's an important bar. And I think that there is something about him as this pretty unsympathetic Character who I mean, he's it takes a while for him to grow sympathy, at least in my cut, uh, to grow sympathy toward Helen and Enola. And like that was nice to see, like, he really did not want them around. And I i felt like that was working quite well. And, and watching him moving around on the boat, like just how fluidly everything worked, it was, uh, it was exciting to see. And I totally bought into it too. Like, I was like right there with him as this person who had been a mutie who had you know part ichthy as they would call him like you know an ichthy man and uh he had gills behind his ears and could breathe breathe underwater had webbed feet could swim faster i found him to be a really interesting development that we got in the story and he just was always believable as the character and i really liked that about the story
1: especially because had they made this movie now it would have been cast by you know i mean like probably momoa right like this this is a character that was cast by a um, a human man who looked like a man and not a superhero trope and this character in today's filmmaking feels very much like a character they would give to the the superhero treatment right muscle bound you know a, a rock vehicle or something like that but but this movie was played i think i guess more sort of straight across the bow so to speak uh and and i think that actually it does a great service to the movie so uh, so far movie starts and i'm bought in what do you think about the the actual uh fantasy of it right because on top of this guy in this post-apocalyptic universe we have this story of the search for dryland dryland is uh, we see in the f- his first major stop at his trading post uh, and the first major action sequence we have um, him coming into contact with this story of the search for dryland as it is tattooed on the back of a girl the girl is Tina Majorino. This is a major Tina majorino vehicle when she was like seven. What do you think of the of the fantastical nature of the story?
0: Largely, I buy into what they're setting up like the world building aspects of this I find interesting i i you know I did have a few questions. I watched this with my wife, and I'm like, well, if it had to be read upside down, why did they why didn't they tattoo it the right way on her back like that seemed uh, like a little. <laughs> a little much as far as that. And why didn't if if numbers are a general tool used by people and maybe not this far into the future, but why didn't they just use the actual latitude and longitude instead of writing like spelling the words out in I don't know whatever Japanese or whatever um Asian script that they were writing in and uh you know to make it easier for people to find them. And then what was the reason that they were you know when they finally get to uh, the huts that where the 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 skeletons are at the end on dry land, and they're like, oh, they knew they were dying, and they because they see all the papers of all the the maps that they had been trying to draw people here. But I'm like, well, if they knew where they were dying, were they just really old? Like, what was was happening? Is there no food here? Is everyone going to be screwed now that they found dry land? But there's nothing here. Like, I, I couldn't figure out why there was an issue with dry land if they were really old. Um, it seems like well then they couldn't have been Enola's parents. Like they would have to have been like grandparents, grandparents? or something like that. Yeah. And what happened to her parents. I mean, I suppose something could have happened. And so they just shipped you know, put her in a little uh, boat and pushed her out into the water hoping somebody would find her. I don't know. I mean there were there were some elements in the world building that I think were a little clunky and needed a little more clarification to to work correctly, but largely The idea of the ice caps, and just to call out how much I love the when studio logos play with the logos and and how the universal logo actually becomes a flooding world that suddenly is nothing but water. Like, that is fantastic. I I really love that bit. But, like, that whole setup was really interesting. And then humans trying to figure out how to survive on the surface of the water— foraging what they could to build boats and find fuel and how Deacon is uh, and his people are all living in the Exxon Valdez, which was a lot funnier <laughs> in 95. <'95. laughs> it was still funny for me now, but I, I think it's going to go over a lot of people's heads now. But it was very funny,
1: especially the shout out to the portrait of the Captain Joe. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, like that was that old was Saint funny. Joe. Yeah. Old so Saint Joe.
0: there's a lot of stuff that they do really well. Like they build a solid world here that I found exciting and really interesting is it at the level of mad max and kind of all of that no and i think that's because sometimes reynolds and costner there's something about kind of their hollywood mentality and the world they come from where i i think sometimes they can't get out of their own way with putting some things that just i i I guess i would just say like we were in our pre-show chat for members we were talking about the postman and how sometimes there's just these Costnerisms that he puts into his films, and I'm not necessarily saying this one has the Costnerisms, but it does have a lot of things that it seems like he and Reynolds, it, it's kind of like their expectation of what Hollywood wants, and so it's it's things that are that are more silly, and I, I sometimes struggle with, and and you know I I know that they probably didn't want to copy too much of The Road Warrior by having a child who never speaks, but there were times where I really was like. I wish Enola spoke less (laughs) like I just I felt like they really (laughs) um, sometimes overwrite in a very Hollywood way. And that's where some of the silliness comes from that I found uh, a little more frustrating.
1: Okay, I want to hang a flag on that point because I have thoughts but i want to go back to something you said about world building that i i have a the the same challenge with that i think is important to note about how hard it is to write these kinds of movies where you where you expect generational memory loss because of this massive shift the big problem i have you brought up already longitude and latitude why didn't they write longitude and latitude on her back And Michael Jeter has a line in the movie saying they've written something like longitude and latitude. These numbers, they don't make any sense, right? Like they don't know what what long lat is. And I struggle with that. And it stuck out like a big sore thumb because this is an entire society built on water, like for water navigation and the transition from living as a sort of i don't know coastal community like living with on land and on water happened slowly and then i imagine all at once but the people who were there you're telling me that they what chose to forgot how to forget how to navigate they chose to forget a technology that was like central to mapping and cartography like how did that happen i would understand it if maybe they were landlocked for a long time and had to live underground or something and and came up and were like oh now we don't know how to navigate because now we have reference and we don't know but that 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 was never set up i just sort of refused to believe that that they didn't that 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 was not something that was somehow passed on to people who spend their entire lives on the water. They you know they do make a, a play for trying to sell it by way of the introduction of paper by the the psychotic boatman who uh, whose name I can't remember but he was he was very very funny uh, he. Uh, it says, you know, I have paper. Do you see this paper? Oh, it's so good. And he freaks out. And that, that I guess you could make a case that if all paper was totally gone, then maybe nobody did learn how to write or read longitude and latitude. But I, I just feel like that is one of those things that probably they would know how to do. They would remember how to navigate.
0: I can see your point. And I can, I can understand why that would be a skill that it, like people wanted to keep around at the same time i can also understand where if you're in a planet where everything is water those numbers to a certain extent like don't Matter because they largely make sense when you're trying to get from one chunk of land to another chunk of land. Yeah, and if you're going you from have one chunk reference of water points. to another chunk of water, it's like it doesn't it doesn't make quite as much sense. And I don't think the atolls are. I mean, it's never fixed. It's never touched in the on in the movie, but I don't think they're fixed. I think that they yeah, I think they're free floating yeah. as everything else, because nobody seemed to really have any understanding about what was under them either. And and so I, I yeah I think that they're all floating and so I just think that those numbers may have meant something at some point, but eventually they just maybe just faded because they weren't as effective. I, I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing.
1: I would add like is there's no mention of the stars in the movie at all? Like is, that's how the early seafaring people navigate, right? Like I don't recall anybody ever saying you know, look at the sky and go toward the stars. Yeah, And that, that seemed like a kind of a miss to me, right? Yeah, right, right. It would have been great if somebody had been collecting like sextants, you know, that would have been cool if Michael Jeter had the only sextant left. That would have been awesome.
0: Well, and, and it would have made sense. And And this is where a little more work on creating different groups of the society would kind of help. Picturing a time when suddenly the ice caps kind of melt from whatever mankind did and society floats. There were there are a lot of boats out there in the world right now. And there are a lot of really smart people who know how to be on boats and navigate and use all the things on boats. I can totally buy into like Deacon and his group. I can buy into all of these the barter systems and everything they have, but I also think that they needed some other groups like people who had been really strong boatmen. Like maybe there's a, a group of people who also Are like the boating clan or something like something where we're getting a little more. And who knows if this had been enough of a success, maybe there would have been sequels. We would have seen some more types of societies, and that could have been interesting to develop this a little more. In just to see, because I just have a hard time. In this world that, like you were saying, with like all of that knowledge of sextants and longitude and latitude and all of the tools that they need, a lot of that just seems to have faded away, and it just seems strange.
1: What what year was this purportedly set in? Was this 2047?
0: It's 2,500. 2,500. Yeah. Yeah. As a result of the sea levels rising over 7,600 meters or 24,900 feet. So really the only thing left, because how tall is Mount Everest? Height of Mount Everest is, and again,
1: 29,000.
0: 28? No, oh, 29. Okay. Yeah. And so, and K2. So uh, there's, there's a few spots uh, you'll have land.
1: So I just think it's important because here we are talking about all these things that would have been more believable, but 500 years is a really long time.
0: Yeah. Uh, sure, sure, sure. 500
1: sure. years. It, especially because, you know, throw against all of these things like ancient sextants, uh, the fact that he does have gills, like, enough time has passed that we see evolution of of man kind of thing um so that's interesting
0: i don't know this is another thing that i guess with 500 years who knows how things could be but something that we were thinking about is like okay so if it's if they're at the tip of mount everest and so everybody is basically floating around on boats at you know 20 24 25,000 feet there, there's a lot less oxygen. So people would naturally have developed to breathe more or, or at that height. And I don't know if that ties into the the evolution of people with gills because it's easier to breathe underwater. But also I was like, so it did evolve because I'm assuming that Mount Everest, the tip would still be really cold. Just because it's the closest thing to the surface of the water, doesn't turn it into a tropical uh, climate all Paradise. of a sudden. I would assume it'd still be icy cold. <laughs> um, so obviously, some other things have have happened on the planet too. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's in, it's there's a lot of interesting world building going on here, and that's that's something I really appreciate with the story, even if some of the work, uh, you know, I, I find kind of hokey. Like I I think like Kevin Reynolds. Kevin Costner, the team really wanted to do like the American version of a Mad Max story, but I, I think they couldn't quite escape their Hollywoodisms.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think that that really cements the the tone, the tonal challenge of this movie. That I think there is there is a Mad Max style. You know water movie buried in this movie, and they it just felt like they wanted to show us some of that grit they wanted to show us just how awful it is. they show us things that are like their their uh desiccation pits where they they oh, throw the dead yeah. bodies, and like that's i there's things that are just like gritty and, and horrifying and yet somehow it always feels like somebody just turned the camera on the Waterworld exhibit at universal studios which is still going it just feels like it it is a uh like it's it's some sort of a cartoon hollywood performance I, I think to its to its challenge i i don't think a movie like uh, uh you know that didn't suffer the hollywoodism would introduce the um the hot air balloon escape route so early in the movie like that just felt like we're making now we're in a kid's movie now we're in a movie designed for that that the lower chord quadrant right like this is not the movie that That I think they were setting up the movie where the guy drinks his own pee in the first five minutes is not the same movie that has the comical escape with the seven year old girl.
0: I don't fault them for wanting to have air vehicles like I think that's a really interesting element, you know, absolutely. But the way that it comes to pass just doesn't play well there's a difference with how it's introduced in this film than just you know for comparison sake going to mad max fury road when you have the 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 battle scene in the with all the vehicles and you have those i can't remember what they call them but those guys on the giant bendable stilts that are like bouncing back and forth and like grabbing people and and you know whatever like introduced the wrong way that could also be incredibly silly and like oh my god it looks like a circus But it ended up being really kind of um, clever and creative and frightening and cool and in a way that always worked. Whereas the just the the big balloon coming out, like if if we'd always seen a balloon there, maybe it would have been a lot more believable that they had this thing there, just the way that is like poof and suddenly has this thing yeah it escape, it, yeah it exists
1: out think. i mean andy you put roller skates on any of these guys in the atoll and you're just a, a breath away from a schumacher batman movie like it <laughs> it goes from really cool and innovative and kind of threatening to goofy in in short order
0: it's very interesting, like, you know, and I think this is where, you know, as we talk about the Golden Raspberry Awards in this particular series, looking at the worst director nominees, Kevin Reynolds being nominated here, and certainly Kevin Costner, uncredited in a large capacity. I I think that there is something about the struggle within Hollywood for some people And I I mean, honestly, I would even put Steven Spielberg in this camp because there are times with some of his films where it looks like we're looking at something on a stage. It just doesn't feel like we're centered in reality. But when you go to George Miller and Fury Road, suddenly I'm like, everything here seems so authentic and i don't know if it's a sheen that the production design department puts on things to have extra grit i don't know if it's the way that the cinematography and the lighting are designed to to just capture things in a way i i, I don't know if i can put my finger on exactly what it is but there's something that that has a a more of a level of artifice when i'm looking at something like this than fury road and i think that's a big struggle when you have a director like Kevin Reynolds. And maybe it's just he's, you know, he's a director who probably just didn't have an idea in his head as to how to make it more realistic. Whereas George Miller started pretty low budget with Mad Max and kind of already was making the gritty post apocalyptic world from the beginning. And he's, you know, had four times in that world to kind of really. Play around and expand on it, and this is Kevin Reynolds out of the gate trying to figure it out, and it just ends up feeling very big in Hollywood.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. When you think about Kevin Reynolds, and and we've talked about Kevin Reynolds, uh, I think once, right? Robin Hood, Prince, uh, of, Prince Thieves. of Thieves. Yeah. 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 Um, when you think about the the scope of Reynolds' work, it, how does this film fit into the into the that canon for you?
0: I, I've never saw Fandango. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Rapa Nui was an interesting one. I never saw 187. The Count of Monte Cristo I saw, and then I never saw Tristan and Isolde or Risen in uh, 2016. And then I I missed Hatfields and McCoys, which I really wanted to see. But um, that was when he and Kevin Costner, they made up and they worked together again in 2012 to make that miniseries, which I heard was fantastic.
1: I think the log line between the two of them on that one was Hatfields and McCoys, no boats. I think that was what they were going for.
0: (laughs) Exactly. When I think of his films, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves definitely has a Hollywood sheen to it. Like the outfits, they're great costumes but they feel like hollywood costumes they don't feel like something that i would picture in an actual robin hood uh 1600s or whenever robin hood was uh, running around it type of world you know it just feels like hollywood costumes and and um i guess 1194 sorry um rapanui <laughs>
1: I thought Rapa Nui was great. I enjoyed my time with Rapa Nui.
0: I, I enjoyed my time there, too. And that was one where he was really trying to tell a story about um, the people on Easter Island. And and I think that, you know, he worked harder to make that one feel a little more authentic. And I enjoyed that one. Um, Waterworld and even the Count of Monte Cristo, like there is an artifice that he is pushing into them that uh, just it just always feels very Hollywood, very. And glossy and so maybe that's just his way maybe he kind of enjoys that aspect of the storytelling but for my money i just i i feel like when you're doing something that's you know in a different time and all of those are stories that take places in different times i just feel like there should be something that makes it that makes me feel like i'm a little more grounded in that period than what he gives me
1: yeah uh okay let's dish on uh on the deacon major antagonist uh is is dennis hopper
0: the one line that i have uh always laughed at and the one thing that i really remembered about this is what he's like well golly gee a single tear rolls down my cheek like that <laughs> always made me laugh uh he is having a lot of fun here he's very over the top He's an interesting one. Sometimes I buy him more than others throughout the film. Like I I I think he actually plays the deacon quite well. I think there's a lot of interesting elements to this character. But again, sometimes I also think that they're pushing for a little more of kind of the goofy humor and sometimes that just doesn't work as well for me.
1: Absolutely agree. I I think in general it's a good casting choice for this movie. I, I couldn't help but think someone somewhere was trying to rein Hopper in right because we don't get the over the top Dennis Hopper which I think we the movie could have made great use of right <laughs> like there were there are sequences that that get pretty close to to his sort of intensity um but most of the time he's just like dancing on this line of do I do I get to go over the top and and they never quite let him go. I, I think the eyeball bit is really funny. I think that's really great. And, and I love that the, the entire exchange where they're painting the eyeball and, and like sewing in the eyelashes and stuff and talking about how it does it look good. Uh, I thought that was really great and really fun. And I wanted like to level up Dennis Hopper from there. And uh, we just never got that that sort of craziness that that I feel like living on the exxon valdez you know carcass demanded
0: i like him as a character i like the the story i i think the struggle again in general is some of this element of this the mysterious girl with a tattoo on her back and everybody is pursuing her and it's like this big thing that everyone seems to be chasing for some reason you know, unfortunately, the people who put the tattoo there again—we've already talked about it—just did it wrong. They should have made it much more clear to actually get people to come here. But that becomes the the MacGuffin that we're all chasing: is we got to get this little girl um, so that we can find the tattoo that gives us the map and everything. And, and that kind of becomes the the crux of the story. Even though no one uh, no one can actually read this, it takes uh, the mariner saying a few things to uh, to Gregor. And then Gregor is able to kind of figure it out and piece it together from there. But I really enjoy, in general, the idea of the Smokers, that they have this huge oil tanker. They've got a lot of fuel, and they use it sparingly to to make these scouts to go destroy atolls and to steal what they have. Like, it was a really interesting element of the story here. And I can see your point in wanting to give Dennis Hopper more freedom to just kind of go all out. But I think if it were, personally, I would have liked it to be in a more R-rated fashion for the story and have him go all out in more the blue velvet kind of crazy, rather than just kind of a goofy, over-the-top crazy. And I think having him be edgy, crazy, frightening would have given us a lot more to kind of go with with that character and and that's more of a direction that I think I think he could very easily have taken it
1: you know that maybe sums up the the my general feeling about this movie is that it it unleashing this movie makes it a different movie and I wanted that different movie right I wanted something that was R rated uh, a little bit more aggressive and uh you know there's just i think it's telling that you have Dennis Hopper's top 4 being blue velvet and easy rider and speed and waterworld right like th- that's just an interesting set of four movies that encapsulates the the spectrum of Dennis Hopper's performances and i i'm with you i wanted more blue velvet and less you know less what we got um yeah he felt still, more
0: dangerous in speed
1: yeah he felt more dangerous in speed more willing to do horrible things
0: yeah
1: and and that leads us i think to his ultimate you know goal which was to find this map on the back of we tina majorino who you have to admit uh, you have to think she must have been a tiny baby when they tattooed a map on her skin <laughs> and pushed her off in a boat yeah. into the world of water these people who are dead got what they deserved whatever it was however <laughs> they died
0: in order to make it all the way over to the atoll who however far that is from mount everest it seems fairly ridiculous that that yeah. you know that this baby survived as long as it did floating in the water if anything they sh- should have found a dead baby with a map on its back <laughs> just <laughs> pulled the skin off and used that you know and it's oh it, my god <laughs> I'm just saying they have found, <laughs>
1: if anybody's looking for a clip to quote from Andy's ever and put on social media, they should have found a dead baby with a map on its back is probably going to be the one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's I mean, I'm not saying it's pretty, but that would have been more realistic. Like it just it would have been the R rated version. Like, why send your baby out with a map on its back? Like, just send maps out. Like, it's like,
1: eventually going to be a dead baby <laughs> with a map on its back anyway.
0: Yeah, like it just—it's such a strange uh, thing to do. And I get it; they're desperate and everything. But knowing yeah. that
1: we wanted our Hollywoodism,
0: yeah, yeah, well,
1: yeah, but we needed our Hollywood uh, I- injection here, and that is in the form of of young Tina Majorino. And uh, you wanted her to shut up, I believe you said. Just you're talking too much.
0: This was yeah an example where the kid has a lot of lines, and it just comes across uh, in a way where it just seems overwritten, and it does. I just didn't. It didn't play as well for me.
1: She has a great speech to um, one of the malcontents. Uh, talking about, you know, building the myth of the Mariner, how he has no name and he doesn't care and he'll kill you. And it's a great speech. And I'm with you. It would have been such a great speech had she never spoken until that point right yeah, like right. i i think that would have been much more powerful but she's kind of a chatterbox and she's always drawing on stuff i'd be pissed too <laughs> so uh yeah. yeah i you know i like her i thought it was fun seeing her because i've seen her in a bunch of other stuff right um napoleon dynamite and veronica mars and um what else was she in? she was in big love and she did an episode of castle and a couple of episodes of bones and true blood loved her in true blood gray's anatomy she was on, a, a, you know, two dozen episodes. I, I think she's a, a really fun actress, and it was great seeing her quite as young as she is here. Uh, it, it was neat. She's She is a talented performer. What they told her to do was overwrought, but I think she's a, she's a talented young actor and very yeah. charismatic on stage, on yeah. screen.
0: I, I do think, though, as a kid, as a child actress, she ended up in a lot of positions where people were putting more words in her mouth than they should have been like when a man loves a woman that was the one thing i really remember about that movie is like good lord they gave that kid too many things to say that sounded like (laughs) a grown-up talking like they just (laughs) they weren't writing it for a kid and it just comes across in terrible ways for sure And so that's that is a a frustrating thing for her because I do enjoy her and I enjoy her as the kid here. Like, I think that she plays it well. It's just she has too much to say and kind of um, was was frustrating to that extent.
1: And Jean Triplehorn, that's our last big character performance.
0: You know, I most recently saw her when I just revisited Basic Instinct, which is where she got her start and then. Uh, the Firm shortly after that, Reality Bites and this. And I uh, really <laughs> enjoy her here. I, I, I kind of liked the character that she's given. And, you know, she has more in the uh, the Ulysses cut that I watched. I guess there's, there's a little bit more with her and the world. And I just, I, I found her character worked for me and the interesting elements that we got to see. Like, I, I really enjoyed her. The way that she kind of transitioned after he takes her in the diving bell down to apparently Denver, Colorado is where they were touring around. Yeah, I I think that's kind of uh, I don't know, just the way that she the way that she like slowly changed over the course of the story to the end where she finally gives him a name. I I enjoyed I enjoyed her character quite a bit.
1: A couple of notes about Jane Triplehorn that you will be fascinated and um, uh, riveted to the edge of your seat. One. Gene and I were both uh, kids in Tulsa, Oklahoma at about the same time. And Gene, like my dad, were graduates of the same high school. That is Edison High School in Tulsa, Mm. Oklahoma. What do you think about that? Fantastic. I mean, sit back now because I don't want you to fall out of your seat. But, you know, I just want you to know we're close, (laughs) me and Gene and the family.
0: (laughs) Nice. I love it. (laughs) Well, any any other bit parts? I mean, Michael Jeter. We've brought up a few times. He plays Gregor, the crazy man who. Oops, I accidentally tripped and broke the handle, and now the balloon's going like the, like. That's the sort of nonsense that unfortunately Michael Jeter had to do, and and translating the map and everything. I like Michael Jeter a lot, and I was this was another of those roles that he was in. I'm just like, eh, I wish they gave him better part here.
1: I do too. I, I think uh you know there are a lot of faces in this movie Leonardo DiCaprio, um Jack, uh, Jack Keeler, Jack Black, uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, there a lot of faces and n- no one else stands out to me as as anything else but backgrounder besides those big ones.
0: Kim Coates was the drifter that you were talking about, the kind of the super crazy one oh, yes. that wanted to yep. trade for mm-hmm. uh for Helen for uh, 30 minutes. I, I that was exactly the sort of crazy George Miller character that I wanted more of in this film. It's like, like Kim Coates
1: knew the movie he was in.
0: Yeah, he was and so And nobody perfect. else did. <laughs> it was exactly the way that that should have played out. Like, I just love that uh, from start to finish. He was just, he was great.
1: Okay, you know, I'll also throw that same qualification to the guy who was in charge of the, the turret gun. The big four-barreled yes. turret gun. Who, he just also so
0: excited to shoot it, he yeah, doesn't stop.
1: <laughs> he also knew exactly what movie he was in, and it was not this movie. It was a, it was a Mad Max movie.
0: That was Neil Gentole, the Hellfire Gunner.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was him.
0: Chuck, so yeah,
1: so far great. I've got two out of the cast who knew that they were actually in a George Miller movie.
0: There were. A lot of little bit players like at the beginning, you called out the um, I don't remember his the character's name, but the really old man who is in the bottom of the oil tank. And that was the
1: depth gauge
0: man, the depth gauge man like that. He was another person that was like straight out of like a George Miller, like there were some of those people that they cast because they just looked great for this type of world. And he absolutely was one of those people. Like he just looked like this this scrawny little thing that was forced to to you know live in the bottom of this oil tanker measuring how much oil they had left. I loved him.
1: That was William Preston, and he was also John the Bum in the Fisher King. Ah yes. yes. That almost feels like a
0: uh, continuity. <laughs> 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 Death Cage guy was John the Bum. Yeah. Exactly. I you know, I will say I also liked the sheriff i can't remember what his specific role was but the guy who at the atoll they had kind of put him in charge of security and he was the one who was getting very frustrated with them that like hey you've brought me on to kind of like make sure things are safe and i you know i think things are safe i think this guy can go and they're like no 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 we want to and again i don't know if you saw this but like when he wants when they want to keep him there to to mate with one of their women right and the security guy—I don't know—I just I liked that character. Like he ends up kind of coming along on the on the balloon later. When suddenly the balloon can carry a lot more.
1: So uh, no, I definitely agree. I, I like him too. He's a neat. Kind of character actor. I just want to go back since you mentioned the mating part. We just have to say a little bit that you know we talked about the Postman in our member pre-show. There are a lot of crossover elements in this movie. Yes, (laughs) crossover to (laughs) the Postman.
0: Like wow, Uh, that was like a weird thing with Costner where he keeps getting invited to to bed one of the females every (laughs) every time he goes to some town in post-apocalyptic movies of his. Hmm. Must
1: be really hard to be. K cause right like just everywhere you go you're asked to bed a local woman.
0: It would have been okay if they had asked him to bed Gene Triplehorn because it was okay that they asked him to bed Olivia Williams in The Postman, but they asked him to bed some strange, uh, you know, supporting, uh, you know, bit player or or background actor, and that's where Costner crossed the line. He's like, no.
1: At least we know Costner has a line.
0: <laughs> I wonder if he would make a mutant baby. Like, or would the baby just die?
1: (laughs) This is evolution. This is what evolution is. Now, Costner is the guild seed for the future of Ichthy Humanity.
0: Yeah. Ichthy Humanity. Ah.
1: I know. What do you think about that? Beautiful.
0: Beautiful stuff. Gotta love it.
1: Can we talk about uh, one of your Js?
0: James Newton Howard. Yes. What'd you think of the music? One of my 10 Js. I love the score for this. Just fantastic. It's romping. It's big, fun, adventurous music. It plays well. And it just fits the world. Like, it has a great vibe to it. I am curious what uh, Mark, Mark Isham was originally scoring the film. He'd recorded a quarter of it. Costner said it was too ethnic and bleak. and uh, he said it, it, That it
1: was, doesn't it, date well. No.
0: And Isham was like, well, let me rework it. And he's like, no, you're fired. And James D. Howard was brought on and wrote a great score. I love it. But I do feel bad for Mark Isham. I'd love to hear what his vision of it was.
1: Did Mark Isham, who,
0: was it Mark Isham who did Prince of Thieves? No, it was, uh, it was, um, uh, it was Michael Kamen.
1: Michael Kamen. I knew it was an M. Yeah. I knew it was another yeah. of the M's. Yeah. Well, I thought the music was lovely. It, de- though, my comment fits the rest of the movie. It is a Hollywood score.
0: Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, very much there so. Is,
1: yeah, and, and I think to to that comment of it sounds too ethnic and bleak, this movie needed some ethnic bleakness. <laughs> <laughs> the soundscape, I think it's just, it's got a lot of, of real sort of big cinema energy and it needed a little bit of grounding in world in the music. The music does, uh, I think, a disservice to any of the cleverness of the building of the atoll and the boats and the, like it's just too, it's, it's too beautiful and uh, needs something a little dirty.
0: Well, yeah, and I agree, and I think that's the issue that we're having, because I think that that's what Reynolds and Costner deliver is a James Newton Howard type of film, and perhaps yeah. what we're wanting is a George Miller, Mark Isham type of film, and that's that's the conflict that that we have, because it feels like – They also want that, but don't know how to deliver it. So they're like, oh, we want a Mark Isham, George Miller type of thing. But it's so hard to say no to James Newton Howard.
1: I think that's it. I think what we have done is built a case for the fact that George Miller needs to make a Mad Max on the water now.
0: That would be fantastic.
1: to Right. Australia, (laughs) there's water there. Like you just drive far enough. You hit the sea.
0: Although interestingly, and I, I can't remember the lore, I know over in the Mad Max Minute, I think they talked about this, but I, I think that the part of Fury Road where they go out to like the, the – it's all sand or something. I think that's yeah. the ocean. And the oceans have largely dried up or have dried <gasps> up for a long way. And I, I don't think there's nearly as much water in his –
1: so, in fact, Post what we have already is George Miller's Waterworld, but it's like Sandworld, and their search <laughs> is going to be for water, like, go find the ocean. I always thought it was that the 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 um the oceans were there, but they were in, unusable, like, that you can't, I mean, you know, there was no fresh water, and that's why there's so much fresh water lore around. Right, right, that. right. But that's really interesting.
0: Yeah. And I could be getting it wrong, but I, I feel like there was something like that, where there's... Okay. Yeah. Uh, Dean Semler is the cinematographer here, a a cinematographer who has done a lot of things. uh, Actually, worked with uh, George Miller on Mad Max Two, and I don't know if that was uh, and and uh, Beyond Thunderdome. I don't know if those are particularly the reasons that they brought Semler on for this, but certainly, um, I I, you know probably more because he worked with um, Kevin Costner on Dances with Wolves. Yeah. Five years before this. What do you think? Well, I mean,
1: look at like I I just look at Semler's top four. Right. And his top four define why I like the look generally of Semler's movies. Dances with Wolves, of course. Apocalypto, whatever you think of the bonkersness of Mel Gibson. That movie looked great. Uh, The Road Warrior, 1981 and Dead Calm like there 's another uh movie that makes horrors on the water uh very very real and resonant and gritty and um, and so i i 'm a big fan of this guy 's camera and uh, the way he 's able generally to capture stuff, which makes me think what went missing uh, it, you know because the rest of these movies do exactly what you and I are asking for i think
0: in general, I liked the look here, but again, going back to kind of the Hollywoodness of the whole thing i can't i can 't pinpoint. Is it, is there something in the camera or the way that Kevin Reynolds tells Dean Semler, this is what I wanted to look. And so Dean's just doing his job to create Kevin's vision. Same thing with like the costumes, like all of this. I mean, I really enjoyed the overall look of all of this. But that being said, there is a caveat where it just, it did have a little more of that Hollywood sheen that I don't necessarily get in Fury Road or something. And Uh, I don't know, I guess because it is so consistent across the board, I guess it falls to Reynolds and Costner. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, I I think that's that's where it goes. Um, So, yeah, I I mean, I think Sam, I think he does great work. And uh, the movie ended up being sort of middling.
0: Well, and at least I never feel like we're on a on a um, uh, stage stage. I never feel like we're in a uh, water tank. I mean, this was kind of like Titanic, where they built kind of a, I don't know what you call it, but just like a giant uh, water stage that they can be filming on. And it just, it largely works, even if it did give the production tons and tons of troubles and everything. Uh, You know, I always felt like we were out in the ocean somewhere. And to that end, it uh, was exciting. Like, I really enjoyed that sense that, and i can't even imagine the complexities of it i think it's funny that spielberg actually warned them uh don't film it on open water um after his troubles with jaws and they did it anyway and of course it was major <laughs> troubles <laughs> uh yeah, I, I, yeah but sometimes I, yeah. you
1: have to learn your own lessons am i right yes. Kevin?
0: Uh, indeed indeed all right well any last points we want to say about this one
1: no i'm good
0: do you want to talk about the uh, the Razzies and all that, or do we want to wait till we jump into our awards segment? Let's let's do that in the awards. Okay, well then we'll be right back. But first, here's our credits.
1: The next reel is a production of True Story, FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Will Van De Kromert, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at b numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. the movie has some some legs
0: you know it, a lot of stuff that came out at the time the novelization there was a sequel comic that came out called water world children of leviathan that came out a few years later 97 there were video games that came out based on it there was a pinball machine released of course you already mentioned the water world a live sea war spectacular that was at universal studios in hollywood japan and singapore and then I think the boat itself I think that fantastic catamaran is actually still in is it the one in Florida I think um I think that's
1: Well I know I know Tommy goes to the one in in LA and sees it all the time he sends me well, pictures show. from yeah, the show Yeah the show is still yeah. there but
0: I think the actual uh that that fantastic catamaran or the trimaran oh, that they built I think yeah. it's actually I think it's been permanently on display in Florida, Universal Studios Florida, since uh, since the movie came out.
1: Well, that's weird because I thought it was destroyed. The boat? In the movie, it was destroyed.
0: Oh, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, okay, here you go. Uh, the transforming version is in private hands in san diego california for many years the racing version was kept on a lake at universal studios florida there you go before being restored for use as a racing trimaran okay named lo real which was as of 2012 being offered for sale in san diego so it had been on display uh, for a while in florida but i guess it's no longer there so yeah
1: but they actually took the boat and raced with it
0: yeah yeah
1: that's crazy. I wonder what that I wonder what to what extent it needed to be converted to become race ready. Uh,
0: yeah, I, don't know.
1: I know nothing about racing catamarans or trimarans, but that's very cool.
0: Well, they probably did something more than just fill the hole in the side with a piece of cloth.
1: They actually actually I think you're probably wrong. I think it's mostly cloth. <laughs> and also they use those levers to to like launch the masts and stuff. That oh, was so cool. Fantastic, I yeah. hope that's still there. Right. That is the ultimate power move when you're in a race, like you just flip a switch and suddenly stuff happens.
0: Right. That is awesome. I I always I always think of this is the silliest example, but summer rental with John Candy, where he ends up winning the race, uh, the boat race that they're in because he ends up putting his pants there. You know, they're just just tailing tiny bit. So he puts his pants up on the sail (laughs) and just the extra wind that they get out of his pants. Uh, helps them win the race. Yes, for sure. Good times. Um, Anyway, back to sequels and remakes. Believe it or not, Universal TV was actually looking at a TV series of this in July 2021. So this was one of the many conversations floating around during COVID. And, you know, praise director Dan Trachtenberg was actually uh, slated to, to helmet. I have not heard... If anything more is going on with that, but it does kind of um, pique my interest because I really enjoy this world. I think it could be something that they could do something really interesting with. After seeing Prey, sure, give it to Trachtenberg. I'd love to see what he would do with it, you know?
1: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, for sure. God, he'd be great. Yeah. Uh, uh, So that brings us to our principal section, awards. Andy. How did this film do in award season?
0: Yeah, this had six wins, nine other nominations. Uh, it actually was nominated for one Oscar for Best Sound, but lost to Apollo 13. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Sci-Fi Film, but lost to 12 Monkeys. Likewise, it was nominated for Best Costumes, but lost to 12 Monkeys. At the 2019 Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best DVD Blu-ray Special Edition Release, and actually won. That's the version that I rented or checked out from the library. It actually has three cuts of it, all three cuts and a lot of extra features so it's actually it is a really nice set After the BAFTAs it was nominated for best achievement in special effects but lost to Apollo 13 and of course at the Razzies that's why we're here Kevin Costner was nominated for worst actor but lost to Polly Shore in jury duty Kevin Reynolds was nominated for worst director and as they said Kevin Reynolds with more than a little unasked assistance from Kevin Costner but lost to Paul Verhoeven The movie lost to Showgirls for Worst Picture, and Dennis Hopper was nominated for Worst Supporting Actor and won that award. And that leads us to our conversation about The Razzie's Worst Director. We have now... Um, this is the end of our series of films we've been talking about. Uh, you know, we've talked about Congo, Cutthroat Island, The Scarlet Letter, Showgirls, and now Waterworld. And then for our, our member bonus episode, our members voted that we throw Batman Forever into the mix as a potential candidate. Where do you sit with Worst Director?
1: This is, it, It's harder than I think I, I expected it to be, looking at all of these films but I don't think it's this one. I don't think it's this movie. I think I probably will stay with Verhoeven for showgirls. But, but it's tricky for me because this, this movie is, is a, feels like a bigger swing. It's a much bigger swing from a production standpoint. It's doing something that I think is, is, has the opportunity to tap into my deep inner child, right? In, in a way that, <laughs> yeah. that I think is fascinating. Like I, I was rooting for this movie maybe more than the others. But in terms of taking a movie and just not delivering on its promise, I still think Showgirls is probably it. Is it possible that the Razzies got it right?
0: Oh, sure. I mean, I suppose. Uh, Although I wouldn't agree with you because I think that when you talk about Worst Director, it really boils down to, okay, they each have, each of these films has their elements that are working. In them throughout, Uh, you know, I I think that there are some strong points about all of the films that we've discussed, Mm -hmm. but the director is the one who, you know, ideally, I mean, I know making a film is kind of a team effort. The producer is often also the one who's kind of in charge of a lot of the creative decision and the money coming from the studio and all of these different things. But the director is really kind of the bottom line when it comes to final decisions about what the costumes should look like, about the casting choices and things like that. And I can fault all of these films for particular elements that don't work based on the director. And I know sometimes it's like cost overruns that aren't really the director's fault, but because the studio had already been spending a lot of money on this before the director really was involved and like that. That can affect the director once they do come on board. But if they come on board knowing all of that, then they're stepping into it. And to a certain extent, a lot of these decisions end up kind of being their fault anyway. And uh, while I do have a lot of issues with all of these, for me, the worst director of the bunch that I would say is probably Roland Joffy for The Scarlet Letter, because I think Joffey, as passionate as he was about the world that he was telling the story of and, and what he saw that Nathaniel Hawthorne was trying to say, I think he overstuffed that movie with so many things that he lost a lot of the essence of what the actual story was about. And and that, for me, was the biggest failure of this bunch of films.
1: I would throw in the other perspective of of Frank Marshall using the exact same argument, taking the the adaptation of congo which on the page you know in the original Crichton book took the fantastical and made it at least believable in this in universe and made something that was just a complete mess amalgamation of uh technology and costumes that just did not play so i i guess i would put frank marshall up there too and hearing you talk about it reminds me that at least Verhoven was working in in the Verhoven cinematic universe for everything he delivered right like at least it was on brand and sure. and I I you know I think you could make the case that Frank Marshall was was not was trying to do something that was unachievable based on his experience and expertise.
0: Yeah I and I would I I would agree with you on that point. I think there are elements in that a film that feels very stagey and uh, Trying to come up with a way to have Amy the Gorilla talk that just ended up being really ridiculous, and yeah, there are, there are a lot of points in that one. So I agree with you on that one too.
1: I uh, I I think that the big surprise, though, and and this is the the thing that I I thought I would hate all of the movies
0: that we're talking about. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, I legit expected to have a terrible experience all the way around, and I just did not. Uh, I found my experience, like, I, I had more fun with more of these movies than I than I kind of thought I would. And, and certainly not The Scarlet Letter, but I had more fun with Batman Forever than I expected in our, our, you know, member bonus. And Cutthroat Island, I had some real problems with Gina Davis, but overall, just watching the explosions and the talk about world building on water, like, that was an incredible experience and and waterworld of course like waterworld has more to it than maybe the you know it's reputation deserves i can see why waterworld has come back with more of a cult following and fandom uh, over the years
0: when you watch the ulysses cut you definitely get a richer story i think there's a lot more to it and um it, it you know to i just warning people it is one of those cuts where for the most part, it looks fantastic, but there are a couple shots late in the film where they clearly had not finished the the effects or whatever, and they were really rough. Like, the shots themselves just felt unrendered, kind of raw. It, to that okay. end, there were a couple moments like that that reminded me when we talked about... Um, a Star Is Born, the extended Judy Garland version that had some added stuff that was just like stills, as I recall. You know, as yes, we could hear dialogue right. and yeah, uh, weirdly unfinished little bits, but but largely the better story. And so, and yeah, you, I mean,
1: you rented that one from the library. I'm looking for it in the streaming services, and it looks like it's harder to find.
0: Yeah, it was the I checked the actual copy out from my local library.
1: Okay, the, one one last thing, story point. So the Mariner has dirt in a jug. Presumably, he got that dirt. Where did he get the dirt? Where do you, is the extended cut show where he got the dirt?
0: No, but I mean, I, I just assume, I mean, he goes down to the bottom of the ocean and, and and he's showing her the dirt down there. I assumed that he filled the thing with dirt in the bottom of the ocean and brought it up. And I'm assuming that like the bottom of the ocean probably is fairly nutrient rich, uh, you know? Yeah. So I assumed that that's where he was getting that stuff. And to that end, I was like, it seems like he'd be selling that a lot more.
1: That was my point, Andy. That was exactly it. Why isn't Mariner like, why doesn't he have the super yacht of post-apocalyptic boats? Like, why isn't he incredibly well-equipped? He's like the only guy who can go get this stuff. Uh, So I, that is a, uh, there's a thing. I wanted, I wanted the succession version of Waterworld, I guess, (laughs) a little bit.
0: Well, it's an interesting world and I I enjoy it. And uh, yeah, I'd love to see them uh, continue it in some capacity.
1: Me too. Uh, that brings us to, Andy, the numbers. how to it do at the box office?
0: This was one with the ever-growing budget. Uh, you know, there's been a bit of back and forth with the actual number. I think uh, Costner said the initial uh, budget that they were greenlit with was $135 million, but Universal said that they would never... Budget anything over 100 million, and so they gave him a 65 million dollar budget. And then, of course, things kept growing and growing. Finally, ended up costing a massive 175 million with an additional 60 million in prints and advertising, or almost 489 million in today's dollars. The most expensive film made at the time, but only held the record until James Cameron came along with Titanic shortly after. This movie opened July 28th, 1995, opposite The Net and everybody's favorite, Operation Dumbo Drop. It (laughs) held the number one spot for two weeks and did relatively well for itself, earning $88 million domestically and $176 million internationally for a total gross of almost $550 million in today's dollars. And even though it was considered a loss, it did manage to scrape by with an adjusted profit per finish minute of $450,000. And they also said that this is a film where video sales and TV broadcast rights also really helped to this movie to the point where it actually really kind of showed as a full profit and people were pretty happy with it. So I don't know. I, I, I wish that we had a sequel. I wish that the Kevins were getting along. But I also hope that when something else does come along, that it's Trachtenberg or somebody else um, and not these two.
1: For Sure. Well, I'm glad we watched it. I think this this might be of the series. Is it the highlight? That's uh, right up there, of our Raspberry series. Uh, so I'm glad we watched it. It's been a long time since I revisited it, and I did not hate it.
0: <laughs> I had a great time, and I was, you know, really glad that I got to see the the three hour version. I, I, for some reason in my head, I always told myself that. It was a three-hour movie when it came out in theaters, and I was surprised that it was only two hours and 15 minutes. I was like, oh.
1: Because then the postman came along and said, hold my beer.
0: Yeah, right, exactly. And so I was. Uh, it, was it was just kind of fun to see that, okay, this is actually a really long uh, version of it that I, in my head, had always thought was there. So it was nice to see that one. For sure. All right. Well, we will be right back with our ratings but first here's the trailer for next week's movie kicking off our next series the 1998 NAACP Image Awards Outstanding Lead Actress in a Motion Picture and this is uh, Casey Lemon's film Eve's Bayou
1: memory is a selection of images some elusive others printed indelibly on the brain
0: you love your daddy baby you know I do that's all I need. You love mama? Your mama is the most beautiful woman I ever met. And I'll always love her.
1: Oh. <laughs> oh. <gasps> What's wrong? Daddy and Mrs.
0: Moreau, he had his hands on her. She blames me for not making you happier. She thinks I'm driving you away. She's a child, Ross. Where's daddy? He's never home. He's supposed to be home sometime. Which one of your patients are you going to see, Lewis? View. Go on outside and play.
1: When I first met Lewis, I said to myself, he's a man who can fix things. And I find out he's just a man. Have you told anyone? Because if you tell him, I'm going to kill you. I'll kill him for hurting you.
0: I put his hair inside the mouth of the snake. You can't kill people with voodoo. Bad girl. You speak to my wife again, and I will kill you.
1: It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
0: You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
1: Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
0: The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show.
1: In Season 13, we explore various awards categories in the films nominated in them.
0: We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The
1: 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Suns I Am, based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers.
0: The 1952 Cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel.
1: So many great movies based on books and plays, like
0: Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter. Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Grey, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at
1: thenextreel.com/originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com/originals today. Letterboxd Andy, you know Letterboxd? I sure do. Uh we're over there at letterboxd.com thenextreel and we are uh, going to right now talk about where Andy is going to cleave off stars from other movies in order to assign them to Waterworld. What are you going to do
0: this? Uh, I, I really did have fun with this one. I, you know, I had a, uh, a, a fun time watching this. It is cheesy. It is silly, but it's, they're doing something big. They were kind of going for broke with it and I could feel it. Like I, I just enjoyed what they were giving to me. And so I have a hard time going below three and a half. I think three and a half is where I'm going to sit.
1: But are you going to heart it?
0: Three and a half and a heart. Yes, absolutely.
1: Three and a half and a heart. I am uh, no half stars right, so I'm going to say three stars and a heart. I can't believe I'm giving this three stars and a heart. Wait, Way to go. Way to go, two by four. You came through. You came through on this one.
0: Yeah, it's a fun movie. Yeah. All right, well, don't forget, you can find me at Soda Creek Film, you can find Pete at Pete Wright, and you can find the show at The Next Reel over on Letterboxd. So what did you think about Waterworld? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
1: Letterboxd with Andrew,
0: as Letterboxd always doeth.
1: Um, wh- where'd you go? What'd you do for yours?
0: I ended up going high, straight up to five stars.
1: <gasps> five stars, like in a row. Okay, yeah, there's what a lot got? of
0: them too. I have five stars by Courtney, who says, "Beautiful classic of a cool gill dude trying to find land for no reason, since he has gills, and the other humans are species racist to him." <laughs> <laughs>
1: It doesn't take long for humans to find creative ways to be racist. <laughs> it's true.
0: <laughs> like, right out of the game. Wait,
1: wait, don't even know we're doing it. No. Um, I, I've got a three star from Josh Lewis who calls this movie Mad Max Cruise Control. Very broad <laughs> and childish take on a George Miller action apocalypse, but still an absolutely incredible feat of analog design work and open sea stunts and spectacle. Not sure. Not really sure why it's three hours long, though. Lol. Uh, yeah. Clearly, Josh is another fan of the Ulysses Cut and didn't yeah. even know it. Interesting. Ugh. Yeah. Thanks, Letterboxed. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM.